everybody, welcome back to the Grey Milk and Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the, are you ready, 1970s. This is the first time I've been able to say 1970s on my show. It's been the 60s for two years, but this issue was out in 1970. So there's a, there's a little tongue twist for me to get used to. I am uh, so honored to be joined by the incredible writer Fabian Nicieza today, as well as my friends Justin Park and Caroline Bird. Uh, we have a lot to talk about, so I'm going to jump right in. But Fabian, I'm going to do a little bit of fanboying briefly, quickly. The first Marvel comic book I ever picked up was, this was during a time when my life was really bad at home. I was a young teenager, things were not good. I was at the grocery store rack and I picked up X-Force number 27, which is uh, Mutant Liberation Front, Feral, and Sunspot Switch Sides, and there's all these great characters, and I was like, oh, this is great. You were the first writer of the first book I ever picked up, and I've followed you for years, and it is so trippy and amazing to meet you. I'm so honored to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it, and I'm very thankful that, that uh, and apologetic that my, my book was the first one that, that you ended up reading. I, I personally, I would have recommended some other writers that are much better than me, but that's okay. Um, I, I get a lot of the, the first time reading a comic and it, it feels so odd to me, you know, because my first time reading a comic was like 1966. So, um, you know, it's like I got to tell Stanley wasn't even the first comic I read. I think it was a Batman or Superman and I'm not even sure who wrote them. Um, but, but it, 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 it always puts it in perspective for me, um, b- both the importance of what what we read when we're young and we're teenagers to us, what, what, how much it matters to us and how much stories can really influence us and make us think about uh, how we want to be as we get older. Um, and, and that's that's the the primary thing that I always think of when, when I have that kind of conversation with someone. Uh, the secondary thing is it makes me just realize how goddamn old I am now. So, <laughs> so thanks, Chad. <laughs> You're so welcome. Thank you. Uh, so uh, let me have everybody introduce themselves. Let us know your gender pronouns if you're comfortable. Uh, uh, Fabian, you do not need to tell us where we know you from. But uh, Justin and Caroline, let us know where we know you from. And then the question for intros today is, have you ever accidentally set a fire? And if so, what happened? Uh, let's go in the order of Fabian, Caroline, Justin. Um, I did not accidentally set the fire, but a friend of mine purposefully set a fire when we were younger. Uh, um, and it was uh, along a whole bunch of scrub brush uh, fields where there was a whole bunch of new apartment buildings being built. Um, I spent really quality formative elementary school years um, in an apartment complex in Sarahville, New Jersey. Um, and and the great thing about it is that it was in walking distance to and bike riding distance to to deep deep woods where we could go exploring and and shopping centers and mini malls and supermarkets where we can go cause trouble and movie theaters we could walk to. Um, but one thing is a whole new apartment complex was being built you know, just adjacent to the apartment complex I lived in. And we used to go there all the time and and and, and play in the, 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 the framework buildings as they were going up, uh, removing all the surveying sticks and having, sorry about that, the dog, um, having, um, having sword fights with the surveying sticks and then putting them back in the ground wherever we were, not realizing what surveying sticks are meant for. <laughs> we probably did, single-handedly, we delayed the building of the apartment complex by six months. Um, one time a friend of mine just goes, hey guys, hey guys. And we literally like four, four of us turn around 
and he had lit a fire in the scrub brush and it was windy and it just actually just started to pick up. And we did what you're supposed to do when you're about 10 years old. We ran like hell to get out of there. Um, and then we we went back about, like, we waited an hour because we were hiding. I don't even remember where we hid, but we were hiding as if anybody w- would have been looking for us. Um, and then we went we went back to peak. And there was about four fire trucks, uh, you know, fire cars. That, it had to be put out uh, because the wind made it spread really fast. Luckily, it did not get to any residences. It did not even get to the the framework that was being constructed on all the apartment buildings, but it, it burned through probably a good 150 yards of scrub brush. Um, I did not set it though, and I will not name the person who did. I don't know what the statute of limitations is for setting fires. I think 50 years might have covered it, but just in case, I won't say the name of who did it. It was Frankie Couple. Fantastic. Uh, let's go to Caroline next. Um, I'm Caroline Bird. I'm known as Caroline Cosplay under all the social medias. Um, my, I did start a fire. It was a small one when I was about maybe five years old, maybe a little bit younger. I was, I was that kid played with matches. (laughs) Um, when my, I was in my parents' bathroom and I found some matches and I just decided to light one up and I couldn't figure out how to get the flame to go out. I would wave it around and you know, even tried blowing on it, but like it didn't, I guess I didn't blow hard enough and I freaked out and just kind of threw it in the trash. The trash, of course, caught on fire. And then that's when I had to run for my mom. And yeah, she just kind of put it out in the bathtub. You know? <laughs> so never again, you know. It's so good to see you again, Caroline. And then uh, Justin. <laughs> Hi, yeah, uh, I'm Justin Park. Uh, I'm a computer programmer for my day job, I suppose. Um, I. X-Men podcast fans might know me from an episode of Cerebrocast that I did about Sunfire, the character that we're talking about today, and also from moderating the Cerebro Discord, if you've seen me around there yelling at people. Um, I can't say I've ever started like a fire fire. I don't have any interesting stories to share in that regard, but I definitely played with matches and lighters as a kid. And so I was always more of a fan of just like melting things um, just for fun. Nothing, nothing like big or anything like that. Um, and just playing around with like candle wax and stuff like that. You know, just seeing uh, like the plastic bubble up and stuff like that. Yeah. So we're obviously going to be talking a lot about Sunfire today. We're covering his first appearance. It's wild. He does some crazy things with fire. We'll get there in a little bit. Uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. I, when I was 13, I was closeted gay, little quiet kid. And I remember writing down the names of kids in my class that I had crushes on. And then I had a, like, it was like a loose leaf paper and I was worried someone would find it. So I found my brother's lighter. He was a smoker and I set fire to the paper. And then of course it burned my hand because I'm holding it like a moron. And I dropped it and it singed the carpet in our call or in our hallway. And my mom's like, where did this singe? I'm like, I, I don't know what happened. Like, it just appeared there. <laughs> Mom, if you're listening, that was me. <laughs> I, I think she knows. <laughs> <laughs> that was breaking news. Our parents didn't know when we did something. <laughs> <laughs> so, Fabian, I know you get asked about X-Men all the time, but I don't know that a lot of people take time to realize how much stuff you have written. You have such an impressive, res- impressive resume at, at Marvel alone. Between X-Force and X-Men and Cable and Deadpool and Cable Deadpool and Nomad and uh, Night Thrasher and New Warriors, 
you have a really incredible resume. Now, I used to work for the Marvel Handbooks. Your writing always takes everybody all over the Marvel Universe. It's a giant sandbox. You play with all of the toys regularly, which I love. Uh, some of your most iconic runs uh, are just seminal to my comic reading experience, uh, both as a fan and as a professional. And I really, really love your work. One of my favorite series of all times is The Thunderbolts. I love Kurt Busiek. I love Mark Bagley. And when they introduced the Thunderbolts, they uh, stayed on the book for 33 issues. This is a team of reformed villains called the Masters of Evil who are parading around as heroes and they get exposed and a bunch of crazy stuff happens. And at a certain point, they left the book and you came aboard with uh, Mark Bagley initially. And then uh, I, I know you worked with Tom Grummet for a long time later. Uh, tell us a little bit. Let's begin there. How did the Thunderbolts inheritance for you happen in the first place? That was a big assignment to take on. Um, I, it it happened like things often happen. Uh, you know, the editor contacts you and asks you if you're interested. Um, in this case, Tom Brevoort was the editor. Uh, I, I think I was writing Gambit at that point for Marvel on a regular basis. Um, I barely remember the time frames now. Um, he, he just contacted me and told me that Kurt was uh, considering leaving the book and and they both thought that um, I'd be a good choice to take over and, and would I be interested? And of course I was because I, I, I enjoyed the book quite a bit. Um, it, it debuted while I was running a claim, so I wasn't paying that much attention to, mar to most books while I was running a claim just because that, that workload was what it was. Um, but, but I did, um, I, I was aware of, of the book just cause I'm friends with Kurt and I'm friends with Mark Bagley. So I was aware of the book and I'd heard nothing but great things about it, especially it's issue one reveal, which, you know, was, was fantastic. Um, not a surprise necessarily to me because Kurt had included incorporated aspects of, of that proposal into other things he'd proposed in the past at Marvel, uh, even when they revealed Hawkeye uh, uh, um, in, in that like issue 24. Or so when they revealed Hawkeye was really the the impersonating the dreadnought or something, and he comes yeah. into the book and kind of takes over as the leader. That was not a surprise to me as a reader in the least because Kurt had proposed a book in the early 90s called Avengers Hit Squad, which was heroes in training. And it was going to be Hawkeye leading a group uh, of heroes in training, some of whom were villains and some of whom weren't. Um, so, so I knew that he was just going to take ideas he had that were all good ideas, but for one reason or another didn't didn't come together uh, and and result in a, in a sale at Marvel. And he was going to use those ideas, and he did. Um, but so I I at that by that point I was regularly reading the book because I was getting it in my Marvel comp um, package every month. Um, and 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 I enjoyed it. It was just a really fun, you know, crunchy superhero continuity granola comic book, which I tend to really enjoy. Um, and I also felt confident that I could do a good job writing it because I felt it, all of the all of the characters, all the themes of the book, all kind of fell into my wheelhouse. Um, so when Tom offered it to me, I said absolutely, and and he just said, all right. Um, it looks like it's going to be like issue thirty four, so I had a few months in advance. And um, and here's what Kurt's plots up to a point, and this is what he's planning to do for his last couple issues, so that I knew where I'd be, so I could hit the ground running. Um, and and I just gave him a proposal for like a, a 12 issue arc, or maybe a little more, leading us up to issue 50, so that would have been like a 16 issue arc, so that we knew where we were going. Um, 
and and Tom approved it, liked it, said let's go, and and, um, and I started working on it. And and Mark is fast enough that he never missed a beat. He went straight from Kurt's last issue to my first issue. And I always thought I did a good job with it, mostly because for the first seven, six, eight months that I was writing that book, a lot of the letters were being sent to the letters page saying, "Dear Kurt and Mark." <laughs> so I assumed that that if 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 you're a reader and you don't necessarily see a difference for the negative, then you're doing something right. If you're a reader and you think that it's the same writer you've been reading all along, still writing the book, that's not actually a, a knock on me. I don't consider that a slight at all. I'm, it means that that I'm continuing to provide the, the the kind of reading that you were enjoying to begin with. I wasn't I wasn't being asked to take over the book and blow it up. I wasn't being asked to change what it was because it wasn't selling as well or anything like that. I think they wanted to keep it being what it was. Um, and 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 as a result, I I, I think I, I think I kept it what it was for a very very long time, you know, because uh, to this day it's the book I wrote the most issues of in comparison in comparison to anything else, and most people don't even think of that me that way because I'm the guy who came in the middle. I came between Kurt launching it and Warren Ellis destroying it, so I was in between the two. Um, and 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 I, I wrote seventy five issues total of the cat of the book, you know. Um, and the characters, whether it be some of the miniseries or even the Zeno miniseries, things like that, it was 75 total issues, which is a, a chunk more even than, than what I did with New Warriors. This book does a lot of things. Uh, right from the beginning, it starts asking questions like, what does it mean to be a hero? What is redemption? Uh, if you are a hero, how far can you push the line before you're considered a villain? There's a lot of really interesting questions as you see characters who've classically been called villains trying to live in this space. And you reinvent that concept six or seven different times using big changes and big characters and big villains. It's great. You get some very, very dark villains along the way, like the Purple Man is a great standout example. But then you get to use these lesser characters. Uh, Songbird is one that comes to mind. And like her, it's easy to accept as a hero when she does bad things. But Baron Zemo, it's a very different type of question. You open the book, uh, issue number 34, with the character Jolt, who is the, the teenage kind of hopeful superhero. She's kind of the jubilee of the team, if you will, uh, getting shot in the head. And it is a harsh wake-up call. I remember reading that live as a, as a teen and just being like, holy shit, they, they just shot Jolt. Uh, and then you give us the long-term mystery of the Scourge, which is another big thing in the Thunderbolts, is people in masked identities as you're trying to figure out who they are. This story also ties in incredibly to the X-Men ancillary character, Henry Peter Gyrick, who is like the most MAGA <laughs> Marvel guy there is. Uh, <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the story that you started with. It's uh, it's incredible. Um, I I think that taking over as a new writer, I uh, and knowing Mark was probably going to leave with at some point. I I'm, I was really glad I got up to issue fifty with him um, because I knew that it, drawing a team book is just absolutely exhausting, and I knew that at some point he was going to leave. Um, and, and as a as a, as it turns out, he left because Ultimate Spider-Man was going to be happening. Um, and that was great for him. Um, but, but I, I wanted, I wanted to do something big. Um, and, and often that means changing your lineup. Often that means killing a character. Um, I didn't really want to change my lineup and I didn't really want to kill a character. Um, but because I knew I was dealing with villains, um, 
I, I felt very strongly and very confidently that every single villain, superhero, comic book trope can be thrown into this mix. And one of the biggest superhero tropes is the villain seemingly dying and then coming back a year later or two years later or whatever. You know, Dr. Octopus dies in a nuclear explosion. He comes back as a ghost uh, a year later, you know, <laughs> so that kind of thing. Um, so I, I knew that that I'd, I'd be round robining that kind of an approach with multiple different characters in the book, which, which ultimately I did. Um, another trope is is the identity, changing your identity, um, or 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 changing your your villain persona, which a lot of villains have done. Uh, so I knew that I could I could play with that, and really it just becomes a matter of trying to trying to mix and match, almost like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. What you're going to do with what character and what your end result is, um, and, and I chose to do that with Jolt right up front. To, Basically, from a story story reasons, it wasn't about liking or not liking characters. Um, sometimes you'll do that as a writer. I don't like that character. I'm going to kill them off, or I'm going to get rid of them because I don't feel simpatico writing them. It wasn't that with Jolt at all. The reason to do that to Jolt is because she was the optimist, and you wanted to throw the characters into turmoil. Because as Kurt was leaving the book, it almost felt like they were just starting to get a sense of... Um, not, not for lack of the proper term, a, a, a sense of stability that I didn't think they should have. Um, and, at, and with stability comes a little bit of repetitiveness and boredom. And I don't think that that book should have that, that kind of, it's not the Avengers. They're not living in a mansion, going out fighting, you know, big, big world threats. They're not the X-Men living in a mansion, going out to fly, <laughs> flying out to save, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so I wanted there to be instability to the cast. Um, and 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 taking down Jolt is a great way to do that because she's kind of the heart of the team, um, and and it hits all of them to one extent or another in a different way, which is also what you want as a writer. You want to you want to try to do something that's going to make all the characters uh, become affected by it. Um, so so I knew I was going to bring her back. I knew I was going to bring her back. You know, um, ha having some some physical issues and mental issues and challenges because i thought that'd be interesting for her um and and so i just you know that, that that's the main reason that, that that i did that um doing scourge was it, it just made sense to me that a villain who was renowned for killing other villains would be a great kind of an opponent for the the thunderbolt and then linking it into jack monroe nomad and link oh spoilers i'm spoiling it for anyone buying the, the omnibus <laughs> this week <laughs> um, uh, you know, linking it to Gyrich and list linking it to, to Nomad um, for me is just bringing it all together, bringing stuff I'm comfortable with. I'm comfortable with Gyrich because I've been an Avengers reader since I was nine years old. You know what I mean? So I read all his original appearances. He's not an X-Men character, he's an Avengers character. Um, but he was such a good character that he was appropriated by all the other writers so that they could plug him into their book, which is how you know you have a great character. Um, uh, so, so bringing Gyrick in and, and making it a vendetta on his part made sense. Making it Jack Monroe to me made sense because I had a comfort level with Jack Monroe. So um, so, so I, I understood where I had left him and bringing him back uh, would work for me in this capacity. Um, and, you know, so, so it was really, you'll, you'll often find in my writing, especially in the last 15, 20 years, I often lean back on things I'm 
I know and I'm familiar with and comfortable with, mostly because I don't read everything anymore and keep up the way I used to. Um, I stopped doing that a long, long time ago. So it's more of a chore for me to try to look at what's been done the last 10 years necessarily, uh, rather than just fall back on something I'm comfortable with and use it. And yes, it's cheating a little bit. And yes, it's lazy a little bit. I plead to both because <laughs> I'm an old man and I don't care anymore. So, um, <laughs> You know, so, so I wasn't as old back then, but but um, I was out of sync with the Marvel Universe just enough that I wanted to, to stick to things I was comfortable, you know. You you did incredible work and a lot of really shocking stuff. I won't give all the full spoilers out, but the Gyric stuff and the Nomad stuff. Uh, Nomad, by the way, for our longer term listeners, is probably an unfamiliar name. Marvel told a lot of really edgy stories in the 90s that really pushed the limit. I just had a chance to interview Gregory uh, Wright, who was on Silver Sable. There were some of those titles that really pushed things. Uh, Dwayne McDuffie's uh, Deathlock. Uh, Fabian's Nomad series was another one. But we'll talk about that another time. But it's an incredible 90s book that really pushed things. And he had the chance to bring Nomad back here. Uh, another masked vigilante that we had to wait to see who it was at the end was the character Swordsman, uh, who turns out to be uh, Andreas von Strucker of the uh, Strucker twins. These are characters that you uh, have used almost to comedic effect multiple times uh, in different titles over the years. And then you gave uh, Andreas the spotlight in an almost uncomfortable way. And then of course- Incredibly uncomfortable. Not and, then, and then Warren Ellis- I can't believe, I can't believe quite honestly that to this day that, that they let me do what I did. For those of you who don't know, because his power worked only in conjunction with touching his twin sisters, and, like they had a touch. Um, I don't know if I, know if I killed her off, or she'd already been killed off. I wasn't even, I don't even remember which it was anymore, but he could still channel their powers through his sword when he was, when he was pretending to be swordsman because the hilt was made out of her, her leathered tanned skin. So he was still in contact with her by, by, by being able to just hold the sword. Um, I won't even get into the fact he was wearing gloves, what that means. I don't even care. That's, that's, that's maybe, maybe the gloves were also made out of her skin. Yeah. So it, it was really, it, it was really kind of twisted. And, and, and now in hindsight, I haven't read those issues in a long time. I want to look at them again. Cause that was a lot of fun. Uh, that, that was just fun. Warren Ellis took the swordsman and uh, and did crazy things with him. And then the Green Goblin pushed him off a hill, I think. But he's alive. He's fine. <laughs> it's comic books. I'm sure he's fine. I'm sure the sister's been returned 15 times, too. I'm sure she's yep. fine also. I mean, I don't know that anyone can be resurrected if you're a mutant. So. <laughs> what, uh, what is it about the Fenris twins that uh, interests you as a writer, particularly using the swordsman as a member of your Thunderbolts team? That was a fascinating choice to me. Um, I, I wasn't never that big a fan of the characters. I, I think they were always pretty much one-off tropes. Like they were just brought in to, to bluster. Um, and, and, and I, I you know, they, neither one of them did much for me on, under Chris's um, run on the book. That being said, I didn't have anything against them either. They just, it just wasn't, they weren't that big a deal to me, either as a reader, which I always was of the X-Men originally, uh, or as a writer. Um, I, I, I did think that, um, be mostly i think in hindsight uh, i may have brought him in and made him the swordsman because i thought that would open up a, a nice strong avenue of stories to tell with drucker and with with, with hydra and and, and, um, and all of that um i i, I also like i also like the, the 
the conf- conflicted characters and and the two of them were always conflicted because their father was Baron Strucker, but this was even better now because you know Andreas is very conflicted because he, he lost his sister. Um, and, and again, I have not read those issues in when the year almost now at this point. Wow, I can't believe it's been that long. Um, and I just got the omnibus sent to me by Marvel a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and and I am going to read the omnibus. I just haven't done it yet. Um, I don't often look at my own stuff. Uh, and much of it I haven't looked at in, in a long, long time. Um, but but Thunderbolts is definitely a book I want to revisit just to read it through and see, see where I'm at now mentally to how I was when I was writing back then and all that stuff. Uh, what uh, post Game of Thrones? That's a more comfortable twincest conversation. But are Andrea and Andreas a couple or just twins? Um, I, I assume they were always not necessarily a couple, but always involved and engaged in all kinds of activities, and often <laughs> with each other, but within the context of with other people. I think I hinted at that in a Gambit issue I wrote where they appeared in, in a Gambit issue where, you know, they, they knew Gambit from several parties they'd been to. Uh, and, and Gambit knew Andreas from several parties he had been to and vice versa and all of that stuff. Um, uh, it, it, I always assumed that that there's between the panel stuff that you weren't going to show in a comic book, but they make up aspects of the characters. Uh, and I, I come from an age and a day uh, both as a reader and later as a writer and an editor where you didn't need to show it on panel because it's pretty immature and stupid to show it on panel. You also weren't allowed to show it on panel. So you did your work by, 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 by telling, telling the reader what is happening between the panels and let the reader, you know, let the reader understand, um, uh, taking into account that we used to write comics with the intention that they were for people ages, as Tom DeFalco used to say, ages eight to 80. And we'd be like, crap, man, that's a hell of a rubber band you're asking us to stretch. Um, but but the truth of the matter was that it was just a philosophical way to think of it, that a comic book could be read by somebody who's eight years old. So there may not be things you want to explicitly state to an eight-year-old, right? But you want to, you want to imply them for a 20 year old or, or, or 30 year old, whatever, you know? Um, so that's how I always approach the books. And, and as far as I was concerned, those, those two characters were, you know, just having, having hedonistic fun. That's all they were doing. <laughs> no, so, no, no puppies were harmed during this orgy. <laughs> no, uh, no children were pushed out of windows. Uh, Game of Thrones yeah. reference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, now, in Kurt Busiek's run, there was a, a mystery kind of behind the scenes for a while. The Thunderbolts have moved into what they call Mount Charteris. It's a, a giant supervillain base in Colorado, of all places, that's been lived in by, I don't know, half a dozen groups. One of them being Factor 3, which is a group that I spent way too much time talking about on my podcast because we've been covering all the 60s stuff and all the ancillary characters. There's kind of a ghosty guy hiding in the background, and after a while, they reveal it's the Ogre, who is a one-off villain from the 60s. Uh, in uh, in the X Men, and he is caretaking someone mysterious in the background. And this is one of my favorite pieces of Marvel trivia. Fabian, tell us the story of Humus Sapiens. Um, well, first to go back to Ogre, just to reveal the secrets behind the secrets. You you can almost predict as a reader if you what may happen or who someone may be if you know the writer's DNA. 
right? And 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 Kurt Busick may be the only writer currently working who loved the '60s X-Men. Nobody really did, okay? And 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 Kurt started reading well after I did. He started in the mid '70s, and I started in the in the mid to late '60s. Um, and and we're the same age. Um, and 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 he always would talk about the original X-Men and nobody would care because nobody liked anything. If it wasn't Roy, Roy and uh, Roy Thomas with Neil Adams, nobody really cared about, about the X-Men. It was always considered a real lower tier Marvel book in the sixties. Um, and, and anything you see, when you see stuff like Ogre and the factor, the factor three headquarters, you're like, it's just hurt. Like, pulling out crap out of his butt that he likes no different than me pulling out nomad to make him reveal him a scourge um so the human sapien thing is really pulling something out deep 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 out of somebody's butt Um, before before you start i just want to justin and caroline do you know the human sapien mythology or do you know the story no oh this will be this will be so i inherited i inherited an unidentified body inside a stasis chamber inside factory three uh factor three uh headquarters inside this mountain in colorado where all good supervillain teams build their headquarters um and, and i didn't know who it was and 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 i didn't want to know who kurt thought it was although i'm i don't remember at this point whether they told me who kurt had intended it to be or not i don't know but i made the decision that I wanted it to be a character who never made the first appearance in a Marvel comic that he was supposed to have made, okay? And it tied into X-Men, and it tied into mutant stuff, right? Um, Which made sense if you're going to have Ogre be the caretaker and you're going to have Factor 3's headquarters be be where you're at, uh, because that's all tied into bad 60s X-Men comics. (laughs) So, so, So... Huma Sapien was the the Marvel character contest winner in the early 70s when Marvel had a fan magazine called Foom, which was Friends of Old Marvel. And Jim Staranko actually edited the first several issues of the con- of the magazine. My brother, three years older than me, we read comics together. Um, he he joined Foom. Right. So we were getting quarterly, you'd get the a black and white. Actually, no, there was color, some some color in it, but not full color. You get the magazine. Um, and, and some of it, some great, like a Jim Steranko Hulk cover, which was just fantastic, stuff like that, right? Interviews with Marvel people, some photographs. Um, it was really fun insider stuff. When you're eleven years old, you, you think you you know more because you're getting this stuff, right? Well, they had a a, a create a character contest, and my brother entered it. He created a character called Novaton, and I entered it, but my art wasn't as good as his. And I don't even remember what my character was that I submitted. My brother's character actually appeared in the book when they were showing the different submissions. So my brother's character, Novaton, is in the fourth issue of Boom or the third issue of Boom. Um, and, and it says Novaton by Mariano Nishiesa. Um, so we're, that was pretty exciting, you know, for us, even, <laughs> even though he didn't win. The winner was a guy named Michael Barrero who created a character called Humus Sapien. And um, that character was supposed to appear in a new version of the X-Men that was being developed in-house by Roy Thomas. So this is what we're talking about, like 74-ish, right? Um, 
X-Men came out. Roy Thomas wasn't writing it. Len, Len Wein was writing it. Roy, I think Roy was editing it. And then Chris Claremont took over. Human Sapien never appeared. So this guy, this kid, he was a teenager, I think, who won the character contest, was notified that the character won, was going to appear in a Marvel comic, and it never happened. And when I was working at Marvel, some of us knew about that, but 80% of the people had no clue. They didn't know, you know, even people, editors working there and everything else. So it, it was just a bit of a, an inside running gag that this poor guy got so badly shafted that it's just not, it's so not right in so many ways. When you think about our love of comics, to think that you win a contest and you're and it, and it, you you never get your winnings, you know what I mean? <laughs> you win a million dollar lot, lottery, but they're not going to give you the money. <laughs> you know? um, and so you can always say I was a lottery winner, but I never got the money. So I told Tom that I, I want to make it human sapien. He never appeared. Marvel still owns and controls the rights to it technically because it was submitted under under that, even though the company's gone bankrupt and they tried to tear up a gajillion contracts with that fake bankruptcy they went through in the 90s. Um, and, and Disney hadn't purchased Marvel yet, but but it was still always in that ownership locked all through the late 90s and early aughts. Um, nobody, nobody assumed that there would be an issue, but we needed to reach out, find Michael and contact him. And I did. I, I worked. I found him. I contacted him. We we interacted. We discussed stuff. And, and he gave me the okay to do it. So I don't even know what issue it was that I revealed it was Human Sapien. It was after 50 because Patrick Zerker drew it, I think. Right? Uh, I'm not even sure. Um, but but we revealed Human Sapien was <laughs> in this stasis chamber since way back when. That's why he never appeared in a Marvel <laughs> comic. And and the guy got his due finally. There was a whole letters page. There was a whole like page in the issue about the history of this and what had happened and all this stuff. Um, At the and, end of the story, Ogre and Humus Sapien end off going off into another dimension together, basically. And they're just waiting to be dusted off by some writer who would like to use these characters again. Yeah, the, uh, honestly, no offense to Michael, but the real cherry on top of that Sunday would be if the character never <laughs> it would only be so appropriate to how he was shafted that it never happened he never appears again and um, we won't we won't talk about this much but there was another character that was a regular member of your title who was also yes. created as a contest winner called charcoal the yes. best man and i know this one didn't end well charcoal got crushed and, and yeah but here's the out. irony and that's um the charcoal was the winner of a wizard magazine contest to create a villain for the thunderbolts and it was done under the auspices of wizard and marvel working together uh, I, i'm assuming the contest rules were all laid out all the little print that nobody ever reads was all in place and this guy was named the contest winner i don't know how it happened i don't know if they picked a randomly out of a out of a hat or if they chose it because they liked the visual and the and the, the concept so, so Kurt incorporated Charcoal into the Thunderbolts. I inherited the character, um, and, and one of the things I wanted to do with that character in Thunderbolts was the, the flip side of the theme. So here we have villains who are learning what it is to be a hero and, and, and choosing that path because they realize how much better it is for them, their lives, and the lives of other people. So I wanted to have the making of a villain <laughs> here is a kid who is not a bad kid 
but stuff starts happening that little by little starts leading him to become a villain. Sure. So, so part of my long-term plan for him was to fake, fake kill him. And when he comes back, he's every time he gets crushed in his charcoal form, he comes back. He can reform himself, go back to his human form. But every single time it happens to him, he's a little off more and more to the point where by the time at a certain point, let's say 25 issues down the road, he's full on bad. Right. Um, the first time I, I took my first step to doing this, I think I I think I crushed him in the little charcoal briquettes. Right. Um yeah, yeah, he was and, smushed by Graviton, I think. Was I, that? Okay, it was. Wow, that was when Graviton. That was when I was having fun with Graviton killing dozens of people. <laughs> Maybe I can't um, remember. He killed a bunch of people. Gra I can't remember how. Gra well, went. Graviton crushed the new Beetle. I always wanted to do this to Iron Man, like literally. Graviton fought the Avengers so many times. I was like, why doesn't he just crush Iron Man like a can? Like, and I took the Beetle and I did that. So like, his arms smushed in. I think the legs smushed in. Then the head smushed in, but there was still a person inside the armor when it all <laughs> I must sound like the most sadistic bastard on, these, on this show. And I'm I'm really not. I'm just having fun. Um so so um so charcoal was gonna come back, and then Tom called me up and said, We don't have to worry about charcoal coming back. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said the contest winner is claiming that he has rights to the character and he wants like a million dollars from Marvel because <laughs> because all those kids are sleeping in charcoal bed sheets. No, they're not. Um, so 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 I go, all right, I guess there goes that long term idea. I said, Can I bring Charlie Burlingham back? And Tom goes, Do we really want to? I go, nah, okay, forget <laughs> it. So so that was it. It just it, it just ended. People assume that he never came back that he was killed because of that contest winner claiming, you know, that he's owed a million dollars for his genius creation. Um, the truth of the matter is he was, he was killed before that even happened before I was even alerted to, to it. So in essence, having him be dead made it a lot easier for us to just keep on going and not worry about it. You know? Um, and I don't know people who act that way. I don't know. I, how do you, you, you enter a contest chances are pretty good. You either know full well what the rules are, or if you don't know, that's shame on you. You should know, you know. Um, so, so I, I was like, seriously, dude, you're gonna like, like, you're gonna take this character out of the book permanently. You're gonna, he won't even be in rotation for Marvel anymore. And, and you know, twenty years later, who knows? He, he was never gonna get the million dollars. Maybe he would have preferred to have seen his character be in the books for twenty more years, you know. It's a wild thing. So there, uh, we're going to transition to the issue review in a moment, but I want to encourage people to go pick out Fabian's Omnibus. There are so many classic, incredible stories with great characters. A lot of them are X-Men ancillary. A lot of them are mutants, including Windshear from Alpha Flight and Skeen, who is the... Oh, Justin's got the Omnibus. Mine's yeah. in my office. I can't go get it. Skeen. I have to crack it open soon. Skeen is the former gypsy moth who is like a sex worker, sex club owner who can manipulate fabrics. I love this character and would love her in an X book. Uh, we've got a ton of stuff with Baron Zemo, Citizen V, and the V Battalion, which includes mutant characters. There's the time that uh, Abner Jenkins, the Beatle, got turned black, which is a crazy yeah. story. That's a, that was, yeah. that's a, mia culpa, mia culpa, my bad. <laughs> Didn't, I, the right idea, the wrong, the, the, the wrong way to do it and the, the wrong you know, the wrong execution. Uh, the idea wasn't bad because that's part of the villain trope, you know, like, you know, yeah. new identity. 
that was that was Fixer playing a practical joke on Abner Jenkins by creating a new identity for him that was really a new identity. But it was the wrong character to do it to, and and the wrong book to do it to, because in a group book you don't have as much of an opportunity to really explore the concept. And I certainly didn't have enough opportunity to explore the concept because it, it could only be done in broad strokes, which makes it tacky. And, and it, it was a tacky subplot because because I didn't have a chance to give it any kind of nuance or any kind of subtlety. So everything had to be, if it's only going to be one page of a subplot per issue or two pages, one scene every three issues, then, then you lose the momentum and you lose the ability to explore it in any kind of an interesting, meaningful way. So that's why I say mea culpa because was, I should have I should have known that by then. I've been doing this long enough. By then, I should I should have made a smarter choice. Yeah, uh, the other ones, uh, the Thunderbolts Army during the Civil War era, the uh, the team of the Beatles, which is just hilarious to me. Still, yeah, I was there's just a... taking every single Beatle costume that's been done and putting someone in it. That was fun. Yeah, see, there's the thing I loved about Thunderbolts, even in hindsight now, is like it was a great intersection. You talk about me enjoying, like I, I do, I, I did, I don't anymore, but I did then absolutely enjoy swimming in the Marvel Universe pool, like the continuity of the characters, the history of the characters. Thunderbolts was the perfect book because so many of those characters had really long history to Marvel and many of them didn't. So it was a great kind of a combination. When you have characters that are the core of your book that have been appearing in the comics since 1963, 64, you know, and then you have some other characters that were introduced in the seventies or in the eighties. Um, it, it gives you a nice rubber band that you, that you can play with, you know, a nice stretch. So you can, you can pluck different parts of the rubber band and get a different sound out of it, you know? Um, and that's really what it was. And it also intersected with Avengers. It intersected Spider-Man intersected with X-Men. Um, it, it allowed you to be able to kind of move the different pieces as you needed uh, because all of them had, all of those characters at one time or another had had their finger in somebody else's pie, right? <laughs> so it gave- Especially, it, it, especially Andrea Strucker. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> that, we don't even want to know where Andrea Strucker's fingers were. <laughs> <laughs> in between the panels his fingers were everywhere um and uh and, and and that's why i made it so much fun to write it and it was a fun book to write it, it, it really was um not notwithstanding a lot of marvel you know editorial political crap uh, uh you know getting getting fired off the book to have it become bite bolts where for six issues they completely changed the concept with all new characters and it just completely tanked. They had to cancel the book. And then three, four months later, Tom called me up after, I think it was after Janice got fired and says, all right, we're going to start over again. <laughs> um, we're going to launch it again, but we're going to do it with Avengers as a, as a, as a mini series. Uh, I already talked to Kurt. We want to do it. The three of us, I was like, all right, fine. You know, uh, and then new Thunderbolts was its own thing in a lot of ways, a little bit different. And even that had some editorial, um, editorial things that I that I had to put in uh, Janice, Janice Vell, Captain Marvel, which I preferred, I would have preferred not to do, uh, but I I kind of was asked to keep him in there and keep him viable somehow. Um, so so even, even, even so, like you, you get 75 issues out of a book and its characters, that, that means that there's a lot there, you know, um, and there always were. 
And and frankly, I never paid any attention after I, I got fired the second time. And I always wished I could get hired one more time because getting fired off the same book three times might have been a world would have been a world record. Um, <laughs> and, and um and I, I um I didn't pay any attention to what Warren Ellis did. I didn't read those trade paperbacks until almost ten years later. Um, because I didn't care. I, I knew what he was gonna do. I you could you could close your eyes and fall asleep and it's gonna be the same dream over and over again or nightmare. Um so so when I saw what he did, I was just shrugging my shoulders. I go, okay, but it was it was a, just a wonderful Suicide Squad book, but it it wasn't Thunderbolts, you know. Um, it's a and, it's it's a great book though, front to back. The theme and how it's reinterpreted. Jim Zub just recently did a five issue series that's pretty good. I know there's a Thunderbolts movie planned. I'm gonna presume there's some big comic plans along the way. I'm uh, assuming so, but it will, once again, it'll be that thunderbolts it'll be something else really the thunderbolts you know um i i you know I, i'm very ambivalent about the movie because they're appropriating a name and I, I and i it won't matter to me as a viewer having been so immersed in in the book and the concept for so long it won't matter to me as a viewer unless they also incorporate the themes into the 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 movie and i'm not sure they're gonna incorporate the themes in the movie because none of the characters they're really using are villains you know not, yeah. none of the characters they're using and i like all the characters and i like all the actors i really do I, i'm a fan of the mcu um i i, I like all of those characters individually and i also think they, that together a lot of them could will you'll get some really good scenes out of some of those actors and characters playing off of each other you know um but that doesn't mean it's a thunderbolt. It's just sure. the name they're giving it, you know, and and that's why it bothers me because it, it, it's the same thing a lot of comic book writers do. They just they just appropriate a name, but they're not appropriating anything that matters about what it is, you know. How uh, how brilliant to hear you share your thoughts and insights. I had I just recently reread this whole run of yours, uh, so to hear the behind the scenes stuff and some of your ideas, this is uh, this has been great, baby. Thank you, thank you. My pleasure. Uh, Thanks. With that, we're going to transition into the issue review. This is X-Men number 64. We are almost done with volume one. It ends at 66. Uh, Roy Thomas is on the book. This is a Don Heck penciled uh, issue. So Neil Adams is on a break for a minute. They note that on page one very briefly. Uh, Tom Palmer is <coughs> on inks. Artie Simek on letters. Stan Lee's the editor. This issue is called The Coming of Sunfire. And this was released in early 1970. Giant Size X-Men comes out a few years later. We have a lot of content to cover between volume one and then, so uh, readers stay tuned for announcements on what's gonna be coming next. Uh, let's talk about the cover of this book very briefly. We have the X-Men uh, fighting Sunfire in front of the United States Capitol building. He gets some kind of prominent airspace up on the right. He's got a wild costume we're gonna talk about. Uh, Angel and Marvel Girl zooming up on the left, Angel's hand on her hip. He sure loves to touch her. <laughs> Cyclops and uh, and Beast are watching as Iceman gets past in the chest. And why can't she just levitate herself? Wasn't she she was telekinetic at this point? Wasn't she? Yeah, yeah, she she could tell him she could levitate sometimes, but not usually. <laughs> Sorry, my dog is getting getting Aww. involved. She just got back from her walk. My daughter took her for a walk. It's raining here, so she's also wet. So this is just wonderful. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about the cover of this book. What are your thoughts and reactions to this cover? This is the first new mutant in a while. So Sunfire kind of making his debut here is kind of a big deal. Because the X-Men's original purpose was to seek out new mutants, which they're kind of back to doing. This is also during the era when Xavier is dead, but only until next issue. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, Justin, can I defer to you for a moment to tell us about Sunfire's costume and design? This kind of takes us onto page one of the book. It is a big, bold, beautiful design until you start to look at the layers of it. Uh, tell us a little bit about this costume. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Sunfire sort of follows a flag suit tradition of superheroes where their costume is you know, meant to evoke elements of the flag of a country, like obviously the big example being Captain America, uh, Captain Britain, even as well as other, you know, lesser known heroes um, representing various countries and stuff like that. Sunfires is complicated because rather than the current national flag of Japan, which is the one that most people are familiar with, the red circle on the white background, they've gone with the rising sun flag, which historically has been used as the war flag of Imperial Japan, most notably during World War II. So a lot of people have some pretty unfortunate associations with that imagery, um, especially in parts of Asia that were you know, directly affected by Imperial Japan during World War II and before then as well. So specifically... So Sorry. let me let, let me pause you yeah. let me pause you there for just a moment. Let's talk about this character. We're going to learn his origin in the book. But this is this is Shiro Yoshida. He Yoshida. Uh, Yoshida? Yeah, Yoshida. Yeah. Okay, Yoshida. It's, it's, the naming stuff is weird cuz you got Mariko who goes by Yoshida and that's a whole other thing. Um, and his is Yoshida. Yo Yoshida. Shiro is Yoshida. Yeah. I, uh, I mean I probably shouldn't be the one to correct pronunciation on that. Uh Caroline, if you don't mind. Just double checking oh. for us. No, I'm pretty sure you're right. It's Yoshida. Yoshida, right? Yeah. yeah. Cool, cool, cool. So uh, let's talk about his origin story for just a minute. And I don't, Justin, this falls into your section. Do you want to tell us a little bit about his origins as explained in this issue? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so his big flashback thing basically talks about how his mother passed away from complications during childbirth a few years after the bombing of Hiroshima during World War II in 1945. And the idea is that this is what may have like given him latent mutant powers, but what really awakens them is when his uncle takes him to the ruins of Hiroshima and he like touches the soil that I suppose is still like irradiated from the after effects of the nuclear bomb. Obviously, like all comic book science stuff, I don't know how much that would actually uh, be still around. Um, but yeah, so his whole deal is, especially in this issue specifically, is kind of like avenging the bombings of Hiroshima specifically because of like his personal losses from that, uh, from that incident. And obviously a big focus is also on his relationship with his uncle, who is the one that sort of raises him. His father is like a busy diplomat that's always traveling to the United States. Um, so his uncle is the one that primarily raises them and that kind of teaches them all of this stuff about the United States and, uh, is the one that really directs his, his anger, I suppose. So this is kind of before Marvel started really implementing the sliding timescale concept that we've explored a lot in this, in this history, Cheryl would have been born in 1945, which would have made him about 24, 25 in this issue. Yeah, maybe even a little bit later. They do notably say that his mother dies like a few years after. So like anywhere between like 45 to 50, I would say. So, but like the point is like he's young and they emphasize his youth in this. And the concept of uh, trauma often awakening mutant powers, this idea of his uncle taking him to touch the soil where his 
uh, where his people were killed. And that being the thing that awakens his powers, I think is really interesting. Uh, Shiro's father is, if I'm saying the names correctly, and please pronounce, uh, or please correct me if I'm getting it wrong, but Saburo is his dad and Tomo is his uncle. And Saburo is a diplomat who's very dedicated to kind of building peace around the world, whereas his uncle is very tied to the idea of imperial Japan. Japan as uh, conquering the world, having a, its rightful place as world leaders. This is the Japan that allied itself again with the Nazis. So you kind of in continuity see him putting uh, the imperial Japanese flag on Shiro's costume. Uh, and then Tomo really being the one to drive that purpose. But then Shiro wears this costume for a really long time afterward. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I know you and Connor talk a lot about this in that epic episode of, of Cerebro. But uh, for, for our listeners, look up the Rising Sun kind of empire and look at some of the problematic portrayal. And that, that's kind of where we're reinterpreting from a 2022 lens, the, uh, the old intent. Uh, if I ever interview Roy Thomas a second time, which I hope to, I will ask him about Sunfire specifically. We weren't there yet when I interviewed him the first time. Uh, Fabian and Caroline, do you have any thoughts on uh, Sunfire's costume before we delve into the book? No, I, I just, um, I, I I think my first time I was exposed to the character was Giant Size X-Men number one. Um, and and I, I didn't know at that time the differences in, in the, the, the symbolism of the flag and how it's used um, I, I just thought um, a it's it's a really like visually dynamic costume uh, B what an incredible pain in the ass it must be to draw panel to panel for whatever artist is doing it um, and then seeing it just on this splash page in this issue alone you're like man artists must hate having to draw <laughs> that, that, that costume um, but but it, it oftentimes we do things um, especially even more so than in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, up into the 90s, we we, we did things um, out of good intentions or out of out, out of doing it for trying to do it for the right reasons without realizing aspects of it. Um, and and I'm sure that Roy Thomas knew new aspects of the the flag since he was a child of World War II. Um, but but I'm sure he didn't know everything about it, you know and, and what a lot of younger readers don't quite get is how limited our access was to certain kinds of information back then, you know, even up into the early nineties, the Google changed the world and people, people take it for granted. Our ability to learn a little bit more about subjects like the detailing of, of the flag and what would be problematic about the costume moving forward. If he wore this costume the first time, that's purposeful. That's okay. There's a reason for it. But the next time he appeared, it should have been something different. That would be the case now alone. Fortunately, now they wouldn't even let him wear that costume, even though it was right to do that from a character context and a story context. Um, the, 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 but the next time he appears nowadays, it should be changed because we should know that. We, we're supposed to learn as we go along. We're supposed to get better as we uh, as we as we move forward. Uh, I don't know that we are, but we're supposed to be. You know, um, we're uh, we're recording we're recording this episode on the same day that I released my interview with Gregory Wright, and I'll I'll cover this very briefly. But in that conversation, we talk about the uh, the character Lamar Hoskins, who's the character Battlestar. And when Battlestar first appears, he is uh, Bucky, and he's an African-American character. And it was 
the writer Dwayne McDuffie, who went to Mark Grenwald and said, um, the term Bucky is actually very offensive. And then they were able to work that into the story about the character learning about that and then changing his name, which is a great example of how to handle these things. I, I know Shiro has been changed a lot in the modern comics, but it took a long time to get him there, which is- uh, which I is do want to point out though, sorry. Um, I do want to point out, especially to like, build off of Fabian's point there, they tried multiple times to get him out of that costume, like tracking him over the years, um, even as early as like the 90s, um they were always trying to switch him out and then they kind of just put him back in and they never really quite explain it um but it i'll is tell you why i know why <laughs> I, I i know one one time that it was done was when will sportacio came up with a different look for him yes. uh, notably one of the first asian people to be writing completely the different look but i'm not 100 percent sure that will did it because of the, the, the problematic aspects of the representation I, I I know part of why he did it was because the original costume is a pain in the ass to draw every single panel, you know. And and and, and I'm not diminishing what Will did or why Will did it. I'm just that that that's part and parcel to probably one of many of the times that they you tried to change and tweak his costume. A lot of it was still stupidity on our part of not really understanding or knowing enough. And it was more simple practicality from the standpoint of drawing a page every, you know, having to draw 30, 22 pages in, in three and a half weeks. You know what I mean? Like, I I, I, I hate to say it, but I think it's the truth, you know. Um, and again, because because either it, it's either a com it's a combination. It, it's it's lack of drive on our own parts to to learn more or know more combined with lack of access to information at a rapid, you know, in a rapid manner back then, you know what I mean? So I, I don't even know what's happened to Sunfire in the last 15, 20 years, quite honestly. I don't, you know, since, since Wilt redesigned them, I have no idea what's really happened with the character. Justin, do you want to take that? What's happened to Sunfire in recent continuity? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess the big thing, he is definitely out of the costume now, and fingers crossed that it is here to stay. Uh, Pepe Larraz, I believe, did a really fantastic design that is both not based on the Rising Sun flag, um, and is also, I think, a lot easier to draw if that helps uh, anyone stick with it a little <laughs> bit longer. Um, it's a fantastic design, and he debuts it as one of the first members of like the elected X-Men team, which gives him a really good moment, a bit of a flashback to a sort of election speech that reconciles, I think, a lot of his very inconsistent um, publication history. Uh, it's funny you talk about like, you know, trying to do better over the years because that's really a lot of times what Sunfire is doing. It's just that because of the way of the nature of comic book stories, he does kind of end up reset back to his starting point, which is like this guy who is a little bit too much of a Japanese nationalist and kind of has to relearn that lesson multiple times for people who haven't seen it the first time. Right. Caroline, would you I remember as a reader, though, sorry, Chad, to interrupt oh, as a reader, though. Guys, I, I I was 14, I guess, when that um, giant size X-Men came out. I got it off of a, a spinner rack at, at a Krauser's book, uh, Krauser's newsstand, which is like a 7-Eleven kind of thing um, in Sarah, it, where I lived. And I remember being so disappointed that Sunfire didn't stay with the team. <laughs> I, I, 
I, I would have that much rather he so had stayed happy to hear. I do have rather no idea. Than, than, than that Wolverine guy who was kind of lame and, and, <laughs> and the Colossus guy. I guess he's okay visually, but he seems kind of boring. I, I would have preferred Sunfire. Um, uh, I, I think I, I think that they they did it because they, they uh, partially because they um the, it was too many characters for them to try to juggle. But I'm guaranteeing you one of the reasons had to be Dave Cockrum didn't want to draw that costume every time. <laughs> and that's a, that's really ironic considering the kinds of costumes Dave Cockrum used to come up with. <laughs> so Sunfire has major anger management problems for a lot of his continuity. We will do a trial of Sunfire on my show one day. Just be patient. Uh, his first words, he's flown up above the city and he yells, ants, this is the land ants. of ants and of ants. smug and smirking ants. insects. But soon they sure know the ominous tread of Sunfire. Ominous tread, a fragrance by Sunfire. <laughs> uh, Caroline, describe this costume for us. If uh, if someone can't see it, what does his mm. costume look like? Well, the front chest part has the rising sun um, flag. And on his arms, the forearms and his ankles, all the way up, going up the calves, he's got what appears to be flames. I don't know what's up with the mask part. It reminds me of like, I don't know, Mothman or a little bit. How do you of, feel um, about the mask? Because I've gone back and forth on it, it. Almost, it almost looks like it's meant to represent flames somehow. Like, it, yeah, I've seen flames. Uh, I've seen like lionfish or like koi fish. Oh, I always, I originally thought it was a piranha or something like that. I thought it was a fish. <laughs> thought it was a fish mask. <laughs> Yeah, it's there is something strange... unfortunate about the way that the silhouette of the mask kind of emphasizes like the eyes in a way that is um not particularly flattering. <laughs> but that's more of like a personal quibble that I have of it than anything else. Um, anyways, go on. The Get only later. the only superhero costume I can think of that's this complex and maybe more is the Jack of Hearts. If you guys don't know that character, oh. look up look up Jack of Hearts. His costume is so so intricate. Uh, even even Sunfire's like the wavy lines on the neck and belt instead of just a straight line. Like geez, like uh, there's there's so much detail put into it. Uh, Caroline, anything else you'd add to the costume explanation? And on the top of his head, he's got more flames, and then he's also got I can't tell if those are black speedos. It looks like maybe. I th yes. think it's just they are black speedos over oh, red, yeah. red scale tights, red chain yeah. mail looking scale the, tights. I think the shorts are red too. It's just in shadow. Yeah, it's oh, a little okay. inconsistent because in yeah. the very first panel, it's like very black, but yeah. But they are, it, if you look at this page too, you see that Tom Palmer is inking a, 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 a tr bathing trunk lines into mm -hmm. the. So it's not leggings; it's it's trunks over leggings. Sure. So sure. if it were black trunks over red leggings, I'd call that a fashion choice. But if it's red trunks over red leggings, I just don't understand it whatsoever. <laughs> so the well, X Men, Shiro's uncle, just not great at fashion sense, I suppose. Wait, <laughs> <laughs> like, that's right. It's the uncle who designed it. it really the X Men is. are back from what they call Kesar Country, which is the Savage Land. They, we just had the two part episode or the two episodes about the Savage Land mutates. They've got a mini Cerebro that has detected a very powerful, perhaps the most powerful new mutant. And Sunfire is extraordinarily powerful. We'll talk about his powers in just a minute. Uh, it looks like uh, Sunfire's father, Saburo, is dedicating a marble monument to the youth of the world outside the United Nations, which is super cool. But the monument looks to be like a bunch of, it looks like it should go in front of a gay bathhouse. It's like a bunch of shirtless <laughs> men holding hands around a circle. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's kind of 
kind of bizarre. But Tomo has got Shiro all like fired up and literally, and he burns the uh, monument to the ground. Uh, Saburo is dressed a little bit like Count Nefaria. He's like very, he's like very <laughs> diplomat. We get a reference later that the, the Time Magazine has written about the Yoshida family. And uh, so they're, they're quite prominent. They're very well known. And uh, uh, then the beast attacks and Sunfire blasts him and Beast gets sunburnt as a result, which is kind of hilarious. He's not, it's not like third degree burns, but he's like, it burned hot enough like Sunfire, right? It's uh, he's like, he, it's solar power. So Beast is sitting out the rest of the issue because he's got to go to bed with a sunburn, which is kind of hilarious. Uh, <laughs> so covering that first couple pages rather quickly, we get a couple of kind of funny moments from the crowd along the way. One girl runs out of the way when Sunfire attacks. Uh, it's time to split before he decides it's time for Toasted Flower Child. So there's a bunch of hippies in the crowd. Uh, and uh, the the fight, you get the you get the sense that Sunfire is a pretty powerful threat uh, right away. Uh, Justin, take that next part of the book. Tell us a little bit about uh, the battle that takes place. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so he ends up facing up against Bobby and Warren as well, and then eventually kind of escaping from them. Um, you see them return to the mansion. Beast puts on a lot of suntan lotion. Um, and then you get the really evocative Sunfire backstory. You see his uncle so let me, doing let the me, whole... Yeah, let me pause sure. you very quickly. There's a moment... I like to look up my cultural references. There's a moment where Beast is worried about the burns on his face. And he says, Gene, will I ever play the Coleman tissue paper again, ma'am? I had to look this up. Apparently... Some guys in vaudeville, like back in the day, used to like put hmm. tissue paper over a comb and blow it as like a little mock instrument on stage. So that's a reference to some old random like uh, vaudeville instrument. So uh, there you go. <laughs> but Justin, keep going. I'm sorry. Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, so this is where you see his uncle like standing very sinister behind him. The flashback is interesting because they have to, because of the way the, the timing of this works, they have to emphasize that he was never actually alive when this happened he talks about he remembers well the scenes that he never saw and there's a really there's a flashback series sorry there's a series of flashbacks where they talk about his mother but then the main focus of the flashback is actually when he visits the ruins of hiroshima with his uncle he touches the soil of the ground and he has this like very dramatic power-up moment uh kirby dots all over the place um he talks about like his you actually see his uncle giving him the costume, which like, I don't know how intentional that was as a choice back when it was first made, but it has kind of aged well, I would say, because it does kind of give him a little bit of plausible deniability in terms of like actively choosing to wear the costume. Um, and yeah, absolutely. He, he It just talks about his uncle sort of like revving him up. Um, I, I do think it's really notable that even in this early scene, he talks about, he's like uneasy. He says, yet even in the heat of battle, it all seems somehow wrong. So he's like already having second thoughts about this before his uncle like revs him back up again. So you see their dynamic really clearly there as well. I think that brings us to the end of, oh, and then in, by the end of page 10 is when he's sort of planning to attack again and the X-Men are also preparing they're uh they're like tracking him through cerebro and like noticing that he's in one of the diplomats cars you get a little you get some fun little moments with angel in this up in this uh in this issue where he kind of gets to flex his like high society knowledge a little bit he talks about how he recognizes the family from like life magazine or something like that um it's interesting to have them as like foils of each other you don't really see 
Sunfire in like high society settings so much anymore. But he did start out as like the son of a really prominent diplomat. And that's like a note that I would love to see uh, them reference a little bit more as well. And then Angel immediately almost gets sucked into a plane engine, but Gene saves yes. him. <laughs> uh, Fabian and Caroline, do you have thoughts on this first half of the book uh, that you'd like to share? You go, Caroline. Um, not, nothing really big. Um, just piggybacking off of what Justin was talking about, how um, Shiro seems conflicted, you know, no matter how much his uncle tries pumping into him, like all this hatred and everything, and you know, but he he doesn't seem like he's quite on board 100% himself. So I found that kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It's uh, also important. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Justin. Go. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I won't get too into it because, you know, he does have a pretty long publication history. But I think it's really interesting and important that this first issue really focuses on how much he is thinking about this like one specific incident that's affected him extremely personally, whereas his uncle is much more generally just like in favor of Imperial Japan as a concept. And then unfortunately, over the years, those get a little bit conflated and then it kind of just becomes like Sunfire. He's that Japanese nationalist character, which is a little bit unfair, even as early as this issue. Absolutely. Yeah, no. And the, the few things that one for me is 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 artistic. Um, just just how good Don Heck's pencils look when Tom Palmer is, is doing the finishes because Tom Palmer was a young, up-and-coming, fabulous inker back then in the late 60s, very early 70s. He'd already kind of uh, cemented himself as one of the most dynamic young inkers that, that had entered comics. Um, and Don Heck, who was always a very, very good artist, very strong uh, and solid, but more of a journeyman artist, um, rarely had that kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, fancy inking on it. And, and you see how much, how any penciler is, is helped or hindered by the quality of their inking. Uh, and in this case, Don Heck is really helped just as Sal Buscema is in a lot of ways drawing the cover, but that that's, um, Tom Palmer inking Sal Buscema on the cover. And you also see Tom Palmer purposefully trying to, uh, create make it look a little more like, like Neil Adams with some of his inking choices. And the thing that, if you look at it, um, not from a story standpoint, from a you know structural comic book history standpoint, it, it's so fascinating to look at those first several pages, look at how many off-skew panels, um, angled panels Don Heck is putting into the work. That's not Don Heck, you know, that's Neil Adams. So they, we're telling Don to look at the work Neil Adams had been doing for the last several issues and try to emulate that kind of dynamic, that kind of energy that Neil Adams was bringing to the pages back then, because Neil Adams also burst on the scene in kind of an explosive manner, um, much of which was just not only his drawing ability, but the way he, the way he broke down pages, the way he, he, the way he presented panels and angles uh, were, was very different. Um, so, so when you look at those first few pages, look at how many non-traditional straight up and down boxed or rectangular panels there are. You know, that, that's, that, that, that's Don Heck doing what he's being told to do by, by Roy Thomas, um, probably more so than Stan Lee, because I don't even know in 1970 how, how much Stan was involved in the month-to-month -month production of the comics. Uh, Roy, Roy was really uh, editing 
uh, editing the line at that point, I think. I'll choose a... I'll choose my words carefully here, but one of the things I think this issue does right, based on my opinion, and I am certainly open to feedback here, is it does talk about the complexity of the generational change. You've got this, and and this is all white men putting this together, of course, but you've got the generation coming out of the bombings on Japan, and now Shiro representing the next generation. And these two father figures, one is trying hard to make peace, but doesn't really listen to his kid. And the other who's involved in the day-to-day is really holding on to kind of an older way of thinking. And Shiro is the product of that. And we'll see at the end of this, both of the father figures end up dead by the end of this issue. But it seems there seems to be a big rivalry between the two of them. Marvel also has a long history, like all comic book companies, of having incredibly racist and problematic portrayals of Japanese characters in comics over decades. And I do feel like the characters are drawn here in a much more respectful way. Uh, that's that's my that's my view. Uh, Justin, Carolyn, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, they're not yellow, so I liked that part. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say yellow they are claw. very low, but that is definitely <laughs> like a thing that you notice that they're not literally colored yellow. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so wrapping up the next couple of pages, uh, Saburo, uh, his statue was just destroyed. He's now going on to the United States Capitol to give a speech. He overhears Tomo and Shiro talking about the Rising Sun Empire, and he literally slaps his son across the face. Like, how dare you? But then shortly after that, he walks in on Shiro, putting on the Sunfire costume, and Shiro hits his dad back. Like, I have to go destroy the Capitol. My uncle is saying, I must do this. And as he goes outside to attack, and that's uh, when the X-Men arrive. Uh, So kind of summing that section up quickly. And then, Caroline, will you close out the book for us? Tell us how things end. So, sorry, let me find that page. Okay. So right after um, Sunfire attacks, who is it? Um, Angel. Iceman goes ahead and saves the day. You know, he saves him. Um, the Sunfire retaliates and blasts Iceman. That's when Jean comes in, tells Cyclops that Bobby's down. Of course, I don't know why she refers to her and Cyclops in third person, but <laughs> um, Cyclops says, you're staying out of this little lady. And <laughs> so, says that she's going to be staying behind and, you know, helping out from the ground. So um, sweet of him. Yeah, little lady. <laughs> like, what is she, she's six years old, apparently. Um, the capital at the time is being evacuated, and then Sunfire sends a blast towards the capital, but Cyclops ends up stopping it with his optic blast. They kind of cancel each other out. Um, he tries talking some sense into Sunfire, you know, telling him, hey, you know, you need to, like, try forgiving your enemies. Cyclops lures him closer, but, um, he discovers that Sunfire is too fast for him. That's when Jean uses, I'm guessing that was her telekinesis, to pull Sunfire's head back and she saves Cyclops. Sunfire's dad shows up and tries to talk some sense into him, um, but then Shiro's uncle shows up and shoots his father to get him out of the way. Sunfire retaliates, blasts his uncle, and ends up killing him. And that's when Sunfire starts showing remorse and starts apologizing to his father. His father says, live only for the future, not for the past. Force the tools of peace from the chains of war. And then that's when he ends up dying. And then at the end, they kind of, the X-Men are kind of like 
oh man, this kind of sucks. You know, like <laughs> we'll try again another time, you know? That's what I'm like, else. we should have helped him. And then they slowly fade into the bushes like Homer <laughs> yeah. Simpson in that yeah. game. <laughs> like Homer Simpson in that game. <laughs> we should have, we should have done more. Nah, maybe the next one will do better. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> why didn't you go up right to him and talk and to him? Like, maybe the next one. <laughs> maybe the next one. Maybe, 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 but, still, but like, not even over the body of his dead father. Yeah, like oh, I mean, the, the key <laughs> though, Justin, Caroline, guys, it's it's not we'll do better with the next one. It's maybe we'll do better with the next <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they're one not even really sure about this. Yeah. They're not. <laughs> James like, is these are characters. This quit. is why they were so lame. They had zero confidence in themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what are your thoughts on how this issue ends and where it leaves, Shiro? I so, personally wish, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you go, you go. I was say, I, I personally wish they would have approached him and, I don't know, offered him counseling, a shoulder to cry on, something. I mean, he just kind of, he showed remorse at the end saying, hey, like, I'm sorry I did all this, I regret it and everything. And then they kind of leave him, like, they don't guide him and maybe recruit him something yeah yeah no, to offer him him crime. Wild. sorry go ahead justin <laughs> no i was just gonna say like agreeing with what caroline said this would have been a prime time for him to have been recruited right like both of his father figures are dead um and without getting too much into it the next time he shows up in publication history it's in i think namor submariner um and, yeah, Namor and then iron man yeah yeah and it's implied that he was deported i'm pretty sure maybe not even implied so it's gonna be rough for him for a little while <laughs> i like this character a lot uh fabian what were you gonna say a moment ago um just that the for me the issue so it, it's it's noble in its intentions but as often with the x-men it was problematic in its execution i i think that um that that trying to shoehorn in the introduction of a character that has two conflicting father figures uh, uh basically fueling him combined with multiple x-men characters just makes for a disjointed sort of a story flow um and and you know it's it's full of the tropes that i always struggled with with the x-men um it, it, you know it, it, he's not just a new mutant he's the most the deadliest most powerful new mutant ever every single month i just uh, a few months ago i was asked to write an introduction to a tashin uh fancy book edition of um of x-men 1 through 21 the original mm -hmm. x-men 1 through 21 um so i reread the the first you know basically the first 21 issues again and and you know i i i would read them many times before certainly while I was writing the book, I, we all dove into that stuff. Um, but but I just think I, I I think there's a reason why I never cared as much about the X Men as a reader. Most readers didn't care as much about the X Men in the '60s as readers, and it's 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 typified in almost every single issue. You know, it, 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 there's a repetitive structure to the book that just just became kind of dull. And I think Roy Roy Thomas and Neil Adams tried to change that a little bit. They tried to bring a lot more dynamic. Uh, um, energy to it, um, mostly because of Neil's writing, but but it, it ultimately didn't change some of the repetitive nature of the storytelling. Um, the, the truth of the matter is that the most interesting story to tell here is what happens after the last page, 
and 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 we don't get to see that we don't you know the, the most interesting thing and maybe roy might have wanted to have um sunfire in the team but he knew the book was going to be canceled in a couple issues by this so he decided not to do it you know um but but the, the for me is shiro's real story starts here right yeah. reconciling his the responsibility and the burden and the guilt and all of that stuff that that's what makes for interesting storytelling not not just the conflict he had in, in his introduction you know um the, uh, so again often with me reading x-men from the 60s it, it, it's almost like bittersweet because it's the the path not taken or the path that could have been taken that was to me is always more interesting as a reader than the one they actually chose to, to depict the existence and of this the, podcast, right. we've delved so deep into the 60s stuff. One of the things I love most about this issue is the inclusion of a racially diverse character, finally. We have so many white mutants. It's nice to see someone from somewhere else. And I know Giant Size expands that more, but this is this is one of the reasons I really like this. Uh, Justin, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Um, I was just going to say, I do want to give credit to Roy Thomas. He definitely, you know, tries to, like, create a through line for this character, even though the book gets canceled the way that he shows up. And uh, I think Iron Man would have been what Roy Thomas was writing. No, I don't think Roy uh, no. was writing Iron Man. He I did. think Mike Friedrich, Mike yeah. Friedrich might have Mike been writing Friedrich. Iron Man oh at that point. What am I thinking of? Uh, Submariner, I think. I, I interviewed Mike Friedrich. Not Submariner. We talked about uh, Sunfire a little bit when I interviewed Mike. Uh, that was He's a good guy. Um, we'll cover again, Justin, I'm going to invite you back for the trial of Sunfire when we get, we're going to delve into his whole history on that one. But this was a delight to delve deep. Fabian, I hope it was fun for you to go back and read this. old. It always is. I enjoy this kind of silliness. I, I enjoy getting to see Tom Palmer inked on heck. That's for sure. It's so, it's so beautifully done. Uh, as we are wrapping up, uh, let me just say, uh, Caroline and Justin, I respect and care for you both so much. I've met Justin in real life. It's so good to have you on the show. Caroline, it's so good to see you again. And then Fabian, you, uh, this is one of those interviews that it just blows my mind. Uh, people like Annie Nascenti and Ian Churchill and your work has been so formative to uh, my development as a person, as a father, as a writer. Uh, really, truly, I know it trips you out to hear that stuff, but it really has made a huge difference in my life. And what an honor to meet you, my I friend. I appreciate Thank that you. very much. Thank you. Uh, as we're wrapping up, let everybody know where they can find you online. And recognizing we're dropping this in mid-February around Valentine's Day, is there anything each of you would like to plug? Fabian, let me have you go first. And then if you need to jump out, I completely understand as we are uh, wrapping up. We're getting close to our time. Um, I, right around the time this airs, uh, a new Deadpool story I'm doing for Marvel Unlimited should be dropping. Uh, I think it's six chapters. Um, it's called Deadpool Loves the Marvel Universe. I think they're doing like a Valentine's themed month or something. Uh, so, so it, it, it was a lot of fun. I, I, I get to write them every once every couple of years, uh, and and I just do it just to be able to flex those insane muscles. Uh, so, so in this one, Deadpool's trying very, very hard to to bring love to the world. Um, and, and and that was good to do. Um, I have a I have an Image comic debuting. I don't know if it's going to be by the end of this year or not i'm fingers crossed but who knows um called free agents i'm co-writing with kurt Busick, uh <laughs> and the art is by stephen mooney so uh, I'm, I'm mentioning that but not talking too much about it yet because it's still too early but sure. uh it, it is being drawn now and, and written ever so slowly um and, <laughs> and that's it in comics i'm not doing a lot of comic stuff right now. doing a lot of trying to do a lot more prose and, and uh, just finished um I just finished writing a, a spec pilot script based on my book. 
Suburban Dicks, my two two mystery novels that came out the last couple of years, Suburban Dicks and Self-Made Widow from Publishing. Uh, We had had a TV option on Suburban Dicks, but they didn't do a great job with the pilot and the script. Um, And we get the rights back real soon, and and we're planning to go out with it again. But this time, I, I wrote the pilot script, so that was a lot of fun to get to do. Um, so hopefully it'll sell because that means that they'll be buying based on the book and, and the pilot script. So we'll see what happens. And uh, is there anywhere people could find you online if they'd like to? Uh, easy to get on Twitter, fa- at Fabian Yusiesa. Uh, my DMs are open, so you can always contact me as long as you're not rude or mean, in which case then I'll just block you because I mute <laughs> and block like crazy fun. Um, <laughs> and... and, and and I'm also available um, uh, on Facebook too, or through Instagram, uh, Fnisiesa uh, on Instagram and Fabian Nisiesa on Facebook. You can always get me through my website. My author website is fabiannisiesa.com. Uh, there is a contact tab. You can send me an email through that if you want. Thank you. Thank you so much for the gift of your time and talents today, my friend. My pleasure, guys. Thank you very much. It was good to see you, Caroline, again. I hope you. to see you again soon. Thanks, Justin. It was good to meet you. Take care. Great meeting you. Bye, guys. Uh, Justin, same question. Where could people find you? And is there anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you are interested, you can follow my Twitter. It's uh, Justin's Parked, J-U-S-T-I-N-S-P-A-R-K-E-D. Uh, in terms of stuff to plug, uh, I my day job, as I mentioned, I'm a computer programmer. Right now, I'm working at a video game company called Kitten Cup Studio. Our first game is uh, Pico. It's a cat-themed tea-making simulator. Um, and it should be releasing sometime, I think, near the summer of 2023. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Wish oh my God, my kids are going to want that so can. bad. <laughs> yeah, it's really exciting. You get to talk to all the like little cat residents of this town, and they all teach you different like rituals and tea making techniques and stuff like that. So it's uh, it's been a really fun process to work on. And uh, and lastly, Caroline. I am on Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, pretty much everywhere under um, at Caroline Cosplay. I'm also going to be attending, um, just an attendee, not a guest, um, at Uncanny Experience in um, in Minnesota this September. I'm also hoping to go to Fan X and Amazing Las Vegas Comic Con this year. So, if any of you are there, you know, uh, come over, say hi. <laughs> I vow to meet you this year at one of those places. <laughs> yeah, join us uh, at FlameCon next this year. I plan to be on FlameCon and probably the Uncanny Experience and 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 FanX because that's in my town. So it will be easy to <laughs> to one of those places. Uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. You can find me Graham Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter, Graham Malkin underscore land on Instagram. My own social media is private because I've got kids, but you two can add me if you want to. Uh, and then we're we're still working in some of the flashback month issues along the way. So our next episode is going to be Excalibur minus one, which is an early uh, Nightcrawler and Day Tripper story. I'm very excited. Uh, we're featuring Seth Martel, who does the art for the show, who has his own feature book coming out uh, in March. So I'm thrilled to be connecting with my friend Seth. Right after that, we have The Trial of KSAR. And then the final two issues from X-Men Volume 1, 65 and 66. I've got amazing plans for both, so stay tuned. The Patreon episode coming out right around the time we release this is going to be all about the character Bova with the incredible Anthony Oliveira. Bova! (laughs) Tune in for Bova. We have a lot to say. Uh, Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Fabian. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, Caroline. Uh, We'll see you all back here next time on Grandma's Game.
Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, It's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.